Welcome to the Worthy Writer edition of the Write Something Worthy podcast. Each month, we bring you an informative interview that helps you live your best life as an entrepreneur. Here on the Worthy Writer edition, we take a deeper dive into authorship topics through conversations with notable writers and quality industry professionals. And now, your host, Tanya Brockett. Today, I have the pleasure of introducing you to Randy Prizer. Randy is a publishing consultant who edits and ghostwrites books and helps people to get book deals with New York publishers. She works primarily with first-time authors. Her author's books have been featured in Oprah Magazine, Time Magazine, and on the Wall Street Journal and USA Today bestseller list. They've also been on Hallmark TV, in airport bookstores, and in big box stores and more. Randy is the author of the Write a Book program, Crappy to Happy, as featured in the movie Eat, Pray, Love, and The Power of Miracle Thinking. You'll find access to Randy's information in our show notes at writesomethingworthy.com. Randy and I have been working together for years, and I am so grateful that today she's going to help you our worthy tribe to understand what publishers look for and what readers buy so that you can position your book to get a book deal. Thank you so much for joining me today, Randy. You're welcome. I mean, there are so many things that I know about the publishing industry that people want to hear because I've been doing this for 20 years and you and I have been working together close to 20 years, Tanya. And so, you know, I'm in touch with agents and publishers constantly. So I'm always getting feedback as to what are they looking for now? What are they buying? What are things that people who are writing books can do to help tip the sale in their favor? So I know as we're speaking in this call, we're going to be addressing a lot of that information that really isn't out there. And so I think it's going to help everybody who's listening, who's working on a book to get the book deal if that's what they desire. That is so exciting. You know, I knew you were the absolute right person to have on this show. I know you're also a nonfiction author yourself. So I want to ask you about your first book, Crappy to Happy, Small Steps to Big Happiness Now. Can you tell us What sparked you to write that book in the first place? I went through a dark night of the soul experience. And, you know, a lot of listeners may be familiar with this term. Sometimes people are not. But it's kind of when everything in your life just goes kaplooey. And there's usually a lot of loss because I say, you know, when there's a loss, I say crises multiply faster than rabbits. So it's usually not (laughs) one loss. It's multiple losses whether it's the deaths of loved ones. In my case, I was editor-in-chief of a New Age magazine. This was the early 90s. I was an editor-in-chief of a New Age magazine in the heart of the San Francisco Bay Area when the New Age was hot and happening and people wouldn't roll their eyes when you said the term New Age. <laughs> so here I am. I'm like the voice of the, of the larger, greater Bay Area about everything that's happening in the New Age. And then the magazine got sold. And I was out of a job, which meant loss of identity. And at the same time, someone I had worked on a special project for committed suicide when he couldn't create his dream. And a relationship I was in at the time tanked. And so I had these multiple losses. I went into a very deep place of um, despair and loss. 
And during those times when we're in those cycles, those dark nights of the soul, it's actually a death of our identity so that something new can emerge. And what happened for me was I lived by the answer to a question, which is, what's the most loving thing I can do for me right now? And in that time, I would just listen to the answer and just follow that. And that question came from a very dear friend of mine, actually a guitar partner named Deborah LaForest. And so when I was sitting, I would hear, you know, what's the most loving thing I can do for me right now? Go do the dishes. Go do, uh, take a walk, cry, sleep. And one day I heard, sit, do nothing. So I sat and did nothing. And whenever I kept asking, that's all I would hear. What's the most loving thing I can do for me right now? Sit do nothing. And eventually these stories started popping into my mind. And then I started writing these stories. Within a month, I had 100 pages and I thought, I think I'm writing a book. But if I'm writing a book, what book is this? And I realized all of my stories related to going through some really crappy experience and transforming it. And within a year, I had written the book, Crappy Too Happy. Then I decided, you know, I've I've been editor-in-chief of a magazine, so why don't I get a publishing deal for this? I figured it would be easy. And boy, was I wrong. (laughs) And so I'm going to the big Book Expo America event, which was the feeding frenzy in the United States for like, I don't know, maybe 30 or 40 years. It's an annual trade show. And actually, because of COVID, it just went under after all these years, and it's not being revived from what I hear. But anyway, this was like 20, over 20 years ago. And I start going to this book expo, and it's huge. There's like, at that time, 40,000 people running around. And it's New York, so everybody's looking for their connection in the New York Minute. That means that agents are looking for publishers, and publishers are looking for more publicity and distribution, and authors are looking for their agents. And it's this big rush, and it's a big, it's a big frenzy. And it was a very intimidating frenzy. And I did that for four years looking for a publisher. And then one day, I stood off the 101 freeway in Mill Valley, California, at rush hour on a Wednesday wearing a dress, high heels, and holding a giant sign that read, Author Seeks Publisher. (laughs) I had been looking. I had been giving it my all. So I went and did this. I actually have a, a picture of it in my crappy to happy book of being out on the in the middle of the of a, a median strip uh, off the 101 freeway at rush hour in the Bay Area. And a publisher called me that night and I became editor in chief of his national magazine. And so they say, you know, be careful what you ask for because you just might get it. My sign did not read author seeks publisher for her book. So you got to be really clear. (laughs) So, of course, I became editor-in-chief of a national magazine, which furthered my credibility. And eventually, that magazine went under not having anything to do with the magazine itself, but with another aspect of of a larger company that it was part of. And then I worked for another magazine in the Bay Area, and they turned out to be funded by embezzled money. And so I never got paid for all the, this. I know this is a very circuitous route, but it's a very fun and true story. I, I didn't get paid for six months of work because in the magazine world, you get often you get paid upon publication, not when you write an article. 
So I was owed for six months of work. This new national magazine had just come out. The head cashier at uh, University of California, San Francisco, was the mother of the publisher. And she had embezzled over $4 million from UCSF. <laughs> so the FBI arrested her. I never got paid. I wound up doing a one-woman show. I raised money. I raised awareness. I had eyeballs on me. Then all of a sudden, I got my book deal. And so I, I always say, you know, if I hadn't worked from Bezler's, all of these wonderful things wouldn't have lined up for me because I stretched myself in, in so many different ways to be able to get up in front of people because before that I was really scared. <laughs> but it led me to my publishing goal. Wow. So, Randy. Yeah, so it, it was quite a journey. So goodness. I was going to this. Let me just, I'll just complete it. I was going to the book expo and right after I started doing the show and then I'm back at the book expo event in New York and telling, you know, meeting with the various mind, body, spirit publishers because that book was mind, body, spirit oriented. I got my book deal within two weeks of meeting with them because I had eyeballs on me. So eyeballs are the critical factor for people who want to get a book deal because most people will say, you know, I've got great content. They're going to love my content. Well, that's wonderful. That's only half of the discussion though. The other half is what I call the business of publishing. And you have to get that right as well as the content. And in the book, in the business of publishing, what matters and it's going to come down to our eyeballs on you and specifically numbers. So publishers, they're making their buying decisions based on those two factors. And the numbers they're looking for are your social media numbers. But not only are they looking at your social media numbers, they're looking at the amount of engagement you have with your audience. Right. And how how does an author gauge whether they're having enough engagement? So, you know, I'll share with you. I was on a, a Zoom call this past year with this one acquisitions editor. The acquisitions editors are the people who are acquiring the manuscripts. And I was pitching nine projects to her. And because we're on Zoom, I can watch her, I can see her. And she's looking at my people one at a time on LinkedIn or Facebook, Instagram, wherever they're they're most active and where their people are gonna be, their readers are gonna be. And she was made, they make split second decisions. She's going, "Mm -mm, no, engagement's too small. You know, I'm just listening, watching. The same thing happened with me. I was sitting with Angelina Jolie's literary agent, pitching him in New York, sitting at a Starbucks table at the Javits Center during one of these book expos. And he pulled out his phone. And my first thought was, in my mind, God, that's rude. You know, I was busy judging him. But no, he wasn't just checking messages. He was looking at my author on YouTube and said, no, numbers are way too small. Click done. So they can make these split second decisions based on the numbers they see. So I want to share the kinds of numbers they're looking for. Good. Please so, do. Yeah. So for like a Penguin Random House, Simon & Schuster size publisher, and by the way, Penguin Random House recently acquired the Simon & Schuster. Uh, so mm-hmm. for a publisher, one of these large houses, they're looking for people whose numbers are at least 10,000. And I'm going to say that's like a minimum. So, for example, one of my authors, her book was on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list for five weeks. The book is called The Tao of Influence. She did a TED Talk prior to me pitching her book. She had a million views of her TED Talk. 
TED Talks are a great way if you're a nonfiction author and you're very differentiated in what you're speaking about, that's a great way to grow numbers. So when, you, when I approach a publisher and I can say, you know, here's, here's social proof right here, here's the link, you know, those numbers are going to speak volumes. And of course, not everybody has, you know, a million people. But if you assume that the larger publishers are going to want to sell 10,000 books in the first year, and as the author, you're a big part of making that happen. So how many eyeballs do you need to have on you to justify that? And obviously, right. you know, people with the largest numbers win. A mid-range publisher, and there are plenty of phenomenal mid-range publishers, and like some of my authors who have been on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list, they've been picked up by Publishers Weekly as top picks. They've come from mid-range publishers. And so a mid-range publisher is going to look for an author who they believe is going to sell 3,500 to 5,000 books in the first year. So again, you have to have the numbers to be able to justify that. When I'm working with people, we leverage, I help people leverage other people's lists. Because everybody knows people, <laughs> other people who have email lists. And so exactly. we're going to get them involved in launch campaigns and things like that. There's very easy ways to make that happen. I send all my people a templated letter. Send this, please send this out to everyone you know. It's a very short letter. And we're asking them to just reach out at the time of your book launch and and contact their audience. You know, you'll write a little letter to them saying, you know, this is what the book's about. I mean, we've all gotten those kinds of letters, buy this book on this kind of, on this day kind of letters. But we can leverage all, all the people you know, all their numbers as well. What about these authors who feel that they are introverts, right? I just sit behind my computer and write or I sit on the beach with my legal pad and write longhand. How am I supposed to create that kind of platform for myself to be attractive to a publisher? Right. You know, I, you know, I tell people my expertise is not social media. It's not what I do. So, you know, I can help people to, you know, the extent that I do, but it's really not what I do. <laughs> so, you know, right. it's, you know, I can't really address that. I have referral partners, like I work with a LinkedIn guy. My, my LinkedIn guy brought my numbers from 2,371 people in the first year to over 12,000 people. I'm now over 18,000 people. And so, you know, I have experts who, you know, who I refer people to. If somebody's audience is on you know facebook or instagram i have a couple of people who do that because people have to prove themselves to me i'm not going to make referrals unless i have actual proof that they're making you know huge progress for people so you know i have a couple of referral partners for example fiction it can be like a really tough sell it's much harder to sell fiction than it is nonfiction. and i was very happy yesterday one of my um, fiction authors got a, I, I secured the book deal for him with, a, um, with a, a top literary agent who also sells to film. And then I had another fiction agent recently also. And the way my authors have built their own fiction authors are building platforms is really phenomenal. They're starting to do podcasts in the names and characters of their people, of, of their, their characters. 
that's unique. So it's a very, very unique. It's a new way of getting the word out because, you know, I have a lot of fiction authors who contact me. A lot of people have self-published fiction books and going, you know, can you take my book to a traditional publisher? I can't, you know, I'm having trouble with sales. What I tell people is, no, I can't. <laughs> Here's the reason why. Once a book has been self-published, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, if it's on, up on Amazon, you now have a track record of sales. If you haven't sold 10,000 books in that first year, Penguin Random House is not going to come running to invest in you. And a mid-range publisher isn't going to come running to invest in, in you and your project or even in your next project if your sales are low for any book you have up on Amazon. One of the questions that I wanted to ask you or wanted you to share with our listeners is how do you decide whether to try to go traditional first, go self-publishing? How do you advise somebody who's trying to make that decision? What I, always, I consistently tell people is I'm not attached as to which way people want to go or, you know, if they're going to self-publish or traditionally publish. I only want what's right and best for each person. And so I like both methods for different reasons. In fact, I've done both methods with my own books. So Crappy to Happy came out through a traditional publisher. And my second book, The Power of Miracle Thinking, came out, um, I self-published. And I like both for different reasons. And this is generally speaking, and these are very general terms. What I tell people is, if you want to make more money per book, self-publish. If you want to get your book out quickly, self-publish. If you are attached to every word you've written and your title and you don't want anything changed, self-publish. If, on the other hand, you are using your book for your career, definitely try for a traditional publisher. Why? Because more media opportunities will open up for you. Larger speaking engagements will open up for you. So if, if your goal is you want to be national, you know, you, you want larger credibility, greater visibility, definitely try for a traditional publisher. So, for example, my authors who have been with traditional publishers, they've been published in um, like Cosmo magazine recently called one of my authors. Actually, it was a, a book that, Tanya, you worked on, uh, Susie Carter's book, Power Your Profits. And yes. Cosmo calling it num their number 17 best nonfiction book 2020. You know, you don't, you don't get into Cosmo with self-published book, <laughs> you know. That's true. Or like, and it is a powerful yeah. book. Oh, it's a phenomenal book. And uh, you did great work on it. <laughs> and um, and so, I, you know, I have an, an author this past October. Her book came out called Words Whispered in Water. Publishers Weekly is calling it one of their top 25 picks. It's won three major awards so far. Um, you know, and one of my favorite stories is I had a woman who was a board housewife in California, Concord, California. And she and her two board housewife friends got together and they formed a little group called the Chicks in Charge. And they decided to take back the dreams they'd left behind. So MJ Margraf, my board housewife author, she, her dream was to become a pilot. So she had to face two major obstacles, one being learning how to fly a plane, and the other was about just being in a very male-dominated industry. So eventually she learns to fly a plane, but she doesn't stop there. She becomes a flight instructor, but she doesn't stop there. 
on the International Space Station, there is a game that she devised with high school students that they're playing. And so her book became Finding the Wow. So, you know, we edited it. I got it sold to a, a publisher. It became Finding the Wow. The next thing you know, Bored Housewife M.J. Margraff has a full-page feature in Oprah Magazine, and she's interviewed on Hallmark TV. So she goes from Bored Housewife to Hallmark and Oprah. Not bad. (laughs) Not bad at all. But you make miracles happen everywhere around you, Randy, so it doesn't surprise me at all. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. I'm very excited. I I, I want to share something I'm super excited about. It's still confidential, so I I can't give the specifics yet because the legal contracts haven't been signed, but I had a phone call from one of the publishers I've sold three books to in the past. And um, one of those books is being, she just called me out of the blue two weeks ago and said it's being optioned for Hollywood film. It's a memoir. And it's like, oh my God, (laughs) that was so exciting to get that call. Yes. Yeah. That's exciting. Now, what does that mean for the author? I mean, we hear about that when, like, Stephen King, you know, everything he writes ends up being a movie or John Grisham and and his books often end up being movies. What does that mean for the author to have that happen? Oh, I think it means doing cartwheels because you're so excited. I think it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, obviously, there'll be, you know, there'll be royalties there's some form of royalties you know i'm i'm not in the film world so you know i can't tell you how all of the the incredible things that are going to happen for that author um you know he he speaks all over the country uh, it's a it's an amazing story you know um i do want to address memoir in general because it seems like every other person is writing them and that's the problem every other person is writing them and so, you know, a lot of people are writing memoir, and it's a very, very difficult sell to traditional publishers now, unless the person's a celebrity. And so I wanted to share a little bit of a workaround that will help any listeners who are writing memoir right now, if that's okay. That would be wonderful. Thank you. Good. So what we want to create, because it's more sellable, is what we call prescriptive memoir. And prescriptive Mm -hmm. memoir is exactly how I wrote my crappy to happy book. So originally I was just writing stories from my life. And then I shared them because, again, this was 20 years ago, and I didn't know much about the publishing world at that time. And so I showed my my manuscript to um, a woman who had actually had three books out with traditional publishers, and she gave me this advice. And it's the advice I pass along to memoir writers. And, and, and again, these are general, general terms that might not apply to every memoir writer listening, but for most people, it will apply. She said, why don't you put steps after each of your stories that are either insights or action steps based on that story? So, and she said, tie all of your stories of your life into a theme. So my theme became four steps to happiness now. So after every story, here's some crappy experience I went through, like you know, working for the embezzlers, and, and then here's four steps to happiness now after every story. My second book, The Power of Miracle Thinking, I interviewed all these people who had all different kinds of miracles, and they're short stories, and I wanted to know what are the thoughts 
the attitudes, the beliefs they hold, and the actions they took that they believed allowed their miracle to unfold. And after each of these short stories, there are three miracle thinking tips based on that on each story. So if you're listening, you know, um, think about what are the theme, what is the theme around each of each of the stories that you're writing about from your life. And then if you put three or four action steps after each one, they're either action steps or insights based on that story that will help people because Every memoir I get in, I'm asking myself two questions. Is this a book that's all about me? Or is this the book that answers the question in the reader's mind, which is, what's in it for me? Because if you mm-hmm. want to actually sell the book and get readers, it better be the answer to that second question, which is, exactly. what's in it for me? So, for example, my original title for Crappy to Happy was, from crappy to happy, a journey out of the pits and into the fruit of life. And I thought, oh, gee, that's witty. Publishers going to love it. But their marketing department, you know, who was sales oriented, changed the title. So they took off the from. It became crappy to happy, small steps to big happiness now because that answered the question in the reader's mind, what's in it for me? Exactly. Thank you for sharing yeah. those steps because yeah. I often have or meet authors who have these incredible stories about what has happened in their life and how they want to share it. But then how does that help the reader? And so when you can share, here's what I went through. Here's how I got out of it. Here's where I am now. Here's how you can too. Then it makes a difference. Yes. And there has to be more you, 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 rather than me, me, I, I, my. Exactly. (laughs) It's like, who wants to read about your life? You know, they want to read about something that's really going to help them. So you think about, like, what are the compelling issues they are dealing with? Like, you know, here's here's a pet peeve of mine. I'll just share this with you. So, you know, I have people contact me who will say, you know, I help people up-level their lives. Or, you know, I help people, you know, my book is about leading an authentic life. But people aren't walking around saying, you know, <laughs> I, I need an authentic life. You know, oh. that, so you think about what, what's real for people. Get real. And are, can you create a visual in someone's mind with your title? Very good. Because if you can't, like, you know, I hear those terms, you know, I help people up-level their business. It's meaningless, absolutely meaningless. There, there's no picture being created or an emotion being created in anyone. And, you know, I, I want to share what the big buzzword in the publishing industry. There's, there's some buzzwords that what publishers are buying. And, of course, this is based on market research as to what readers are buying. And these are some of the most critical things that I feel like I can share on this call. And the big buzzword in the publishing industry now is outcome-driven titles, outcome-driven content. And I'm going to define what this is. I was on a Zoom call with a client, actually a mutual client of ours, Tanya, and with the McGraw-Hill Acquisitions Editor. And she said, you know, I'm looking for outcome-driven titles and outcome-driven content. 
And then she defined what she meant by that. She said, I'm looking for books that will take the readers from point A to point B with all the steps in between. So by the time the person finishes reading the book, they can actually apply something and do something differently. So she said, I'm not looking for the big picture, you know, broad, broad vision, broad scope kind of book. So practicality really, really matters. So if you look at your title that you're currently writing, is there an outcome in it? Right. And one way to think about your outcome is to write a list of the, like a column with the word more at the beginning. And then you think about somebody's going to read your book. What are they going to come away with? More what? More, 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 more. And that can help you generate some ideas for your title. Good. So more happiness, more money, more peace. Right. Okay. Yes. You know, something that's going to prompt a title. You know, that also correlates to what is working well in the self-publishing realm right now. And that is having a short read that's more one solution focused. So it is truly outcome driven. And yep. it answers it's that question of of more. It, yes, and it make it just makes total sense. <laughs> you know, so like what what is a good length for a book? In traditional publishing, I tell people 50,000 words. You know, that's a a good length for nonfiction, for um for fiction, usually for a first-time author, publishers are looking at 92,000 words, usually not more than that. Correct. I've had some authors coming in with 125,000 words. I'm like, how can we shave like 40K off of this? <laughs> and you know, and you have to, you have to if you're gonna go with a traditional publisher. You know, and, and, and everybody will point to like JK Rowling and say, well, wait a minute, you know, her first book was like 700 something pages. That's the norm, <laughs> just, just not the norm. <laughs> That's right. That's the exception to the rule. Yes. Like uh, originally, Words Whispered in Water, the book that Publishers Weekly, you know, picked up and is one of their top picks. And oh, that's a whistleblower book related to Hurricane Katrina, by the way, that particular book. Mm, yes. Originally, it was at 150,000 words. Mm. And so, yeah, we had to, you know, <laughs> that had to be chopped down, it had to be edited quite a lot. Oh, yeah. Well, one thing that I remember Stephen King talking about how your first draft of a book is going to be measurable percentages lower and smaller and tighter after you've gone through the editing process. And that's a yes, good thing. And, you, and people also fear, I think a lot of people fear editing because they're very attached to what they are writing. But unless mm -hmm. you're working with people who understand what publishers buy, <laughs> like you understand that, Tanya, all the people I work with, we, we're in that realm. So we understand, you know, how to do that and really not lose, you know, actually enhance the flavor of the story and of the book. Exactly. Right. Now that is right. Now, yes. you, you often identify um, a particular thing that 
if you're serious about getting a publishing contract you don't want to do. What was that? So definitely do not self-publish if you haven't self-published yet. Because I still have okay. some people who say, well, you know, I'm just going to, you know, put the book out there and test the waters or they're going to, a publisher is going to see my book online. Then I know they're going to want it because it's already online. No, <laughs> they don't. <laughs> you make it so much harder to get a book deal. You know, I, I want to share, um, yeah, I want to share um, another way to uh, kind of circumvent the whole numbers game. I, I just remembered this one. Um, I have um, a project where the authors did a co GoFundMe, and they had 450 sales, you know, like pre-orders for their project. And it was a mind, body, spirit project. And I'm thinking, hmm, you know, that's pretty good, 450 sales. And I think their project is perfect for Hay House. And Hay House being, you know, one of, if not the largest mind, body, spirit publisher in the world. So we put together the book proposal for all nonfiction, a book proposal, which is a very large business plan is put in, in place for every nonfiction book because they're mandatory for all nonfiction. We did the book proposal. I polished it and I sent it to the VP publisher in New York of Hay House, who I've met with in her office and have pitched her mm -hmm. live. So, you know, we, we know one another. And I pitched it on a Thursday morning at 9 a.m. Now, the thing with Hay House that I already knew is that what they look for, they look for authors who have, and these are right from the, from the publisher's mouth, VP publisher's mouth. They want authors who have a mailing list of 100,000 people, and they're looking at the open rate on that mailing list, on that email. So, you know, obviously, yes. they're looking for people who have very, very high numbers in place. And here I had this author who only had 450 pre-orders. But I figured... <laughs> What the hey? What the hey, hey house? <laughs> so I decided to pitch it. So here it is, Thursday, on the Thursday at 9 a.m., I pitch it. At 9.20, basically 20 minutes later, I get an email back from the publisher saying, this project looks stunning. Let me do a deeper dive into the proposal. I'll get back to you. That's a Thursday. On fr Friday morning, her acquisitions editor in New York contacts me and says, we want to meet with the author. So we have a Zoom call on Monday about the project. Now here, this this they had 400. She had 450 pre-sales. Clearly, that's not 100,000. Exactly. And so our yeah. And so if authors can can get pre-sales going, obviously the larger the better. Of course, you have a better chance, especially if you've self self-published and basically sabotaged yourself for the next for this potential deal. <laughs> wow. And so I actually have an idea. I actually did my own podcast about how to create pre-sales while you're writing your book. And I would just like to share it because I think this Please. would be incredibly helpful. One of the things that you can do is write your first page. Let's say, you know, you've written a bunch of your books, so your first page is really strong. And make sure that your first page, and I'm just talking about your first page. I'm not even talking about the rest of your book, just page number one. Make sure that page is professionally edited, polished. It is stellar. That hook is so strong in the first line, in your first sentence, in your first paragraph. It has to be stellar enough so that a person's going to go, oh, my God, I'd, I'd love to read this book. So your first page is very, very strong. It's been 
professionally polished, edited. It is ready. Then I would, what I would do is I would ask people on your email list, would you be willing to give me feedback on a book I'm writing on just my first page? Now, when you're asking for feedback, most people who are willing to do this, almost all of them, if not all of them, will say, oh, it's wonderful. I love it. So you have to ask for very specific feedback. And the way to do that is ask people, could, would you be willing to tell me the strengths of this page and the weaknesses or, or the weaknesses? So you're giving people permission to give you real feedback. And so what's happening, anybody who replies to you is now invested in your success. So now you can create a list. And you, you might do a follow-up email after somebody gives you feedback. Thank you so much for giving me feedback. Would you, are you interested or you know, would you support me in my book launch when it comes out? Would you be willing to buy the book when, it, when, when it's ready? Whatever you can do, whatever you know, follow-up question you want to ask, but you're going to get more people invested in your success. Excellent. I'm seeing that more often on social media as well. Oh, where, cool. yeah. where people will ask for that feedback, then ask them if they would be interested in signing up for being on the pre-order list. Yeah, that's wonderful. See, I thought I had invented it. <laughs> it's already out there. Well, that's now, not good. <laughs> now, the the way you ask that question matters, and the fact that you yeah. are directly asking people through email. People on social media, they don't often know you from Adam sometimes, and right. their level of engagement isn't as deep as someone that you could personally email. Sure. sure. So your you know, information would be a lot better. You know, and, and a lot of people, like, let's talk about the first page a little bit. Because, you know, a lot of people, you know, might start their book, but they're really not getting into it until page 15 or 20. You know, I've seen books that have oh, yes. a combination of a forward, a prologue, an introduction. It's just like, no, no, just, just, just get right to chapter one. <laughs> you know, just, I mean, it's okay to have a forward or, or one of those things. But generally, I tell people, just jump into the book. People don't want to read all of that front matter all the time, unless obviously you're an expert who has some, you know, really cool expert who is who's providing a forward. You know, get to the action, right. get to it. Because if you don't get to yes. it, the readers aren't going to. <laughs> that is you so know, true. And, and there are some authors who don't even bother with intros because they know for a fact that their readers don't read them. Yes, that's true. <laughs> They you know, can put something crazy of, in there and their readers will never know. Yeah, one of the things that, you know, I was speaking for the Sierra High Sierra Writers Group in Reno, Nevada a couple of years ago. And I'm, I was so impressed. It's always stuck out with me what the, the, the host of that meeting did. There were about 60 people in the room. And after I had given my talk on how to get a book deal with a publisher, he asked for people's first pages. So this is something apparently this group knew about that they always did each time. So anybody who wanted feedback on their first page could hand him their page with it, and there was no name on it. So people didn't know whose work it was. So mm -hmm. maybe there were about 10 people. And so he read, he would read like the first line and then he'd ask for feedback. He said, how many people in this room would keep reading the book based on this one line? 
So, you know, a certain amount of hands go up. Then he read the first paragraph and he asked, how many people would continue based on this paragraph? Oh, some of your hands went down. Why? And so people would give very honest feedback and the author could get that feedback. And I think that's just so important when thinking about your first page. How strong is it? Does it, will it attract people? And, and getting feedback can be so helpful in, in rewriting and reworking and in, in making that first page stellar. That's a very good point. Now, how do writers who are looking to agency, they're not going to see that first page of the book. So how do they bring out their hook? How do they bring out their specialty? You know, why this book is so great when they're presenting to agents and publishers? So are you talking about like live events, like agent speed dating, that kind of thing? Well, that, that's a very good point, <laughs> but even in writing as well. You know, it's very interesting because the agents I work with, they're top agents. They're people who also sell the film. They're people who do, you know, six-figure deals for our mutual clients. And so it's a whole other level of relationship. And it can be very, very difficult just as, a, you know, an author who doesn't have a relationship in place. You're a new author. So, for example, the level of agents who I play with are people who I've built relationships with for close to 20 years. So for me, I have some of these agents who will tell me, Randy, when you have something for me, text me. I'm getting, a, text me first. You know, I'm getting a thousand emails a, a month and submissions. She goes, I'm, a number of them are telling me they're not even looking at their email submissions. So it's a relationships game in a large part. So, you know, having those kinds of resources, like people like myself, and there's probably other people who, you know, may do things, things like I do, but that's one of the things that I do. Um, so I will just text agents and say, like, you know, Fran, I've got a hot one for you. <laughs> Please look for X, Y, Z, you know, that kind of thing. And so then I follow up with my, my emails. Um, the most important things that you can do, though, let's say you're writing an email, is address both your topic and your numbers very, very quickly. So, like, right up at the front. Okay. Um, sometimes when I'm when I'm p putting queries in emails, I'll write, you know, high, huge platform author. Platform meaning eyeballs, publicity, your publicity platform. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll, I'll go with whatever's the strongest thing for the author. and It'll be either in the subject line or it'll be in the first paragraph because it's not just about your wonderful, phenomenal content. It just isn't. You've got to address the business of publishing very, very quickly and upfront. That's right. So, you know, Randy, I have seen you in action. I remember being at Book Expo America and having lunch with you and seeing you meeting with agent after agent after agent, fighting yes. for your clients <laughs> to get their books into their hands. Yeah. Oh, my goodness, the impact that you have made on so many authors' lives is absolutely incredible. And that's and really what it's about, you know, because a, a book isn't just words on a page. It's your dream. And I get to help people birth their dreams. And that's my joy. I love that. Isn't that exciting? Yeah, it is. That is so wonderful. 
Well, Randy, I, I tell you, I have some of your resources available for our tribe on the writesomethingworthy.com website. In our show notes for this episode, they'll be able to find that. So I really thank you for that. And I just want to mention one in particular because I just feel like it's so actionable and helpful. And that is the right the right book uh, that you provided for us. And that's in our show notes. Magnificent. Yeah. Magnificent. You know, like what I, what I say is there's a book you want to write and a book a reader will buy or a publisher will buy. And are they the same book? <laughs> and so I have in this report, you know, it's this free report, but it's, there are exercises to do to help people discern, to help you discern what is the right book for me to write. It is so good. That That is such a great gift for our listeners. So I really appreciate that very much. Sure. You're very welcome. So how will our listeners connect with you later and learn more about your work and maybe get you pitching them in front of agents? (laughs) (laughs) Sure, sure. Which is, of course, one of my favorite things to do. I love getting people book deals. Um, The easiest way is just to go to my website, www.authoronestop.com. Authoronestop.com. And there's a, you know, a contact link right on, right there. And, on the home page is a, on author one stop. There is a long scrolling bar, and it just shows like book after book after book after book after book after book of you people I've helped. So, yeah, this, uh, this is my joy, you know. And I primarily work with first time authors, so and and this is really my joy, helping people make their impact in the world with your with your words and and your message and your story. Love that. That's exactly right. So do I. And that's why we probably align so well and have so many great clients together. So I am so grateful for your being on Write Something Worthy. This podcast is already better just because you've been here. (laughs) So I want to thank you so much. Yeah, you're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to today's episode with guest Randy Pizer. Visit writesomethingworthy.com forward slash podcasts for resources referred to in this episode. Have a wonderful week and join us next Wednesday for another fabulous episode. And remember, download, subscribe, and join the Worthy Tribe.